Well, over the last several weeks, uh, we have been unpacking what is known in the Bible as the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Once again, a covenant is a formal and a sacred relationship between two parties. And before we read the text, I want to map out what we've been learning and where we've been going uh, in um, understanding the covenant that God made uh, with Moses and in Israel. Uh, In Exodus 19, when I preached two weeks ago, we saw the introduction of the Mosaic Covenant, where God reminded his people of how he, he redeemed them and delivered them out from slavery in Egypt. And he describes just how he brought Israel to himself on eagles' wings. In Exodus 19, we saw God's heart for his people, how he treasures them as a prized possession, and how he calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He would be their God, and they would be his people. Last week, as Pastor D.C. preached on Exodus chapter 20 to 23, we saw the terms and we saw the commands of God's covenant. These are the Ten Commandments and God's laws for his people. The whole law can be summarized with two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in that sermon, we're reminded that the law is not the means by which we enter into the covenant, but rather the law is God's instructions for how covenant people must live. Okay, the law is not the means. In, in other words, the law is not a ladder that we climb in order to get to God. It's not a ladder we climb in order to get into God's family, into God's kingdom, but rather we obey the law, we regard the law as holy and good because we already belong to him. We are already his children. We are already saved and redeemed and loved. And because of that relationship, we obey the law. We have high regard for the law. Now, finally, today in Exodus chapter 24, um, we're going to see it's actually one of the most important chapters in the book of Exodus. Some theologians actually consider this chapter one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. And here we're going to see the ratification of, of the covenant. The covenant is going to uh, be culminated. It's actually going to be made between God and his people. And we're going to see that this covenant ceremony isn't just a ritual, okay? It's not just an event, it's worship. It's worship. We're going to see it as a ceremony of worship. And these are the three movements God is making in the Mosaic covenant, in the forming and making of the Mosaic covenant from Exodus chapter 19 to 24. There are instructions or introduction, then commands and ratification. You can kind of think of it uh, like a wedding, right? For, for two people to get married, you start with what? The proposal. And then as an engaged couple, you do all of the planning. You do all of the preparation, right? And then on that wedding day, you have the wedding ceremony. Well, it is the wedding day. It is the ceremony time for God's covenant to be ratified with his people. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. And we're going to be reading uh, all 18 verses, or the first 18 verses, all 18 verses here. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Amen. The word of the Lord. Today, I have four points in the message. Four points, big curveball. I'm going to do my best to try to get through them in time for communion. And to be honest, as I was preparing the message, I wanted to do a five-point sermon. I wanted to do a five-point sermon, but uh, I cut out the fifth. Uh, But for the note takers, here are the four things we're going to see in our passage. First, we're going to look at the structure of the covenant. Second, the words of the covenant. Third, the seal of the covenant. And finally, the joy of the covenant. Okay, so the structure, the words, the seal, and then the joy. Now, the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is that this is an outline of worship for us. Okay, we're going to see in Exodus 24 an outline of a worship service. And this is why God saved Israel, so that they could worship him. I've said this over and over again. It wasn't just God being compassionate and God being anti-slavery and God being kind. God had a purpose for redeeming and saving Israel. And it was so that they could worship him. That's what God told Moses in Exodus 3. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and when you do, you will come into the wilderness and serve me on this mountain. Israel will worship me on this mountain. Well, that promise and that prophecy came true. And here we see it at Exodus 24. This service begins, just like our service does, with a call to worship. With the word of God inviting his people in. 
Then there is a reading of God's word and then a response of faith. Finally, sacrifices are made unto God and a meal is shared. And so if you map your way through this chapter and you see it through the lens of worship and then you think about our service and our liturgy, there are a lot of parallels, a lot of shared elements. And I hope we come to appreciate that we here at All Nations, we're trying to worship in the way that God has designed it, okay? In a way that God has designed it. In the call to worship, we see that God is not only inviting people in, not, in, not only inviting people to come close, but he is teaching his people that he is holy. Once again, Israel is called to worship him, but at the same time, God sets up boundaries. This must have been pretty confusing. God says, come to me, worship me, hear my voice, know me and experience me, but you can't come up on the mountain. Don't touch the mountain, right? And so he sets up these boundaries. Israel sees God in the thick cloud of fire. They hear his voice, but still they must stay back. Some can go up the mountain. Seventy of Israel's elders go with Moses. Moses' brother Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they join Moses and partially they go up the mountain, but they can't follow Moses all the way. Only Moses ascends furthest into the mountain to meet with God. God is reminding Israel, even in this invitation, this call to worship, he is holy and there are boundaries. This reminds us, church, that worship is not a free-for-all. Okay? Worship is not a free-for-all. Worship is neither man-centered nor man-made. To worship God in spirit and in truth is to worship him according to his design and his invitation. Okay? So, and I hope that we would hold this in balance, guys. In worship, there is a privilege to approach God. In worship, there's a privilege to be able to, to know him, to receive him, to enjoy him. But only if we come in the way that God has commanded. Okay? We get to experience him, but under his authority. Okay? Not our invention. Not according to our preferences. Not according to our own ideals. We must come to God in his way by his invitation, by the pathways that he has set before us. And so the goal of worship is not just your own creativity. The goal of worship is not just you expressing yourself and saying to God whatever you want and doing before God whatever you think is pleasing and say, this is my sacrifice, this is my offering, I'm going to do me. That is not the goal of worship. The goal of worship is not creativity, it's actually submission. It's actually submission. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to meet God on his terms? Okay. Are you willing to meet and worship God on his terms? When you come to church on Sunday morning, do you come as a humble follower or do you come as something else? Do you come as something else? And what constantly burdens me as a pastor is I think many of us, we come with different postures, with different desires. Some of us come as consumers. And we want the service to cater to our needs. We want this, the, the service to cater to our desires. And we come thinking, bless me. Man, I hope the praise team blesses me. Sing some awesome songs. I hope the singers really bring, bring it. The drummer better stay on beat. right? I hope the music is a blessing unto me. We think, entertain me. I hope Pastor Mike doesn't just speak theology and talk about the Bible. I hope he has some good stories. I hope he's funny. 
I hope he keeps it short and we say entertain me. We think care for me. I hope God's people, I hope this church, I hope the families, I hope the college students, I hope they connect with me and reach out to me and care for me. That's the heart and posture of a consumer, friends. Or do you come as a critic, judgmental of the songs? You're like, why are we sing that? I don't even like that song, right? Why are we doing that? Judgmental of the message, judgmental of the people, and you are only content. I have been this person. You are only content if everything is up to your standards, if everything is according to your preferences and your liking. And we are such critics. I know people who only enjoy sermons when the preacher says what they want him to say. Okay? When the preacher says what they want him to say. Okay? But you know what that is? That's just, that's just confirmation bias and living in your own echo chamber. But I've been that person, friends. I have been the Sunday critic, not the Sunday follower. I have been the Sunday consumer, not the Sunday worshiper. Which are you? The true posture of God's people in worship must be that of a follower. We are the sheep. He is the shepherd. In biblical worship, God governs us by his word. He leads us by his spirit and he ministers to us through his people. This is the spirit of what is known in uh, Reformed theology as the regulative principle. Regulative principle. That God doesn't just call us to worship him. He doesn't just invite us to worship him, but he teaches us how to do it. He teaches the church, he teaches his people how to worship him in his word. God regulates his worship. He governs over his worship. We actually have a powerful example in the Bible of breaking the regulative principle. Of not worshiping God according to his word, but according to just our own preferences and our own ideas. Nadab and Abihu, they were mentioned in verse 1. And they should have learned this lesson from their uncle Moses. Okay? Their own father was Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest of Israel. And so Nadab and Abihu were priests. And in Leviticus 10... These two young priests were struck down and they were killed for offering God an unholy and a strange fire. They went into the tent of God, into the tabernacle, and they offered God an odd, strange, unauthorized offering. And for that, God struck them down. Just think about that. They weren't killed in the wilderness. They weren't killed in combat. They were killed in the tent of God. And God's response to them was this. His rationale. Why did this happen? Why did God strike down Nadab and Abihu? They were just trying to worship. God says this. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Among those who want to draw near, I will be remembered as holy. I will be worshipped as holy. And as God's people remember that I am holy, I will be glorified. And when Aaron, their father, who was still alive, heard that his sons had died in the tabernacle. When Aaron, their father, heard what their sons had did, he held his peace. He held his peace. He knew that God was holy. He knew that what his sons did was wrong. He held his peace. The point is this. What glorifies God in worship okay, is remembering that he is holy and worshiping according to his word. 
That's what glorifies God. I, I think there's sometimes we come in church and we think what God really wants, what glorifies, we got to reach down deep in ourselves and bring something beautiful and good to God. And so our focus, our attempt is to get really inward, really subjective and give God something. And that is exhausting. And I also want to say it can be very dangerous. What glorifies God is for us to remember that he is holy and for us to follow him as he leads, for us to submit to him. That's what God desires from us. That's the structure. That's the first thing we see here in Exodus chapter 24. Then we see the words of the covenant. So God has called Moses and the leaders to go up the mountain. But before they go up, the covenant is actually ratified. We're going to have this full ceremony between God and Israel. The ceremony begins with Moses reading all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Okay, this is Exodus chapter 19 all the way to 23. If you thought today's 18 verses was too long, imagine that. Okay, imagine five chapters of public, four chapters, I can't do math, four chapters of Old Testament public Bible reading. But he does this. He reads all of the laws, all of the rules, right? all of the commandments of God. And, and I want to make a distinction between the words of the Lord and the rules of the Lord. In verse 3, all of the words of the Lord. Uh, Moses is referring to the Ten Commandments. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. That's why Pastor DC's sermon last week was ten words. Ten words. Okay? And then all of the rules of God, they are the laws of God. Right, given to Israel in chapters 21 and 23. So if you read that, that's called the book of the covenant. And there's all these laws about ethics, personal relationships, property, right, um, uh, social justice, and those issues there. And those are in the book of the covenant. And after Moses reads the law to Israel, the people answer in one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What a good response. Okay, that's the right response. As God's commands and his laws are, are read over us, we should say, yes, Lord, all that you have said, we will do. Then Moses writes everything down that the Lord had said. Why? Because this is the covenant custom. Right? Just with our contracts today, right, are you going to just trust somebody on their word and a handshake? Right? That's a dangerous thing to do. You want something in binding, written form. Okay? All those things Moses wrote down, and it made it formal, it made it binding. The law was written so that it would be never forgotten. Never forgotten. So that Israel would have no excuse for their disobedience, no excuse for their, for their rebellion. Now, before we move on in the text, I want to do a quick theological sidebar. Quick theological sidebar. I said this the last time I preached on the covenant of Moses, that all the covenants of the Bible, um, after Eden, after the fall in Eden, they are under one large umbrella covenant called the covenant of grace. Okay? And there's this tendency to think that, man, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noadic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they're all like so different. And, and people can uh, compare them to one another and see them in disagreements and all of these things. But I want you to understand that they are all under one large covenant, the covenant of grace. And each covenant, when we read from Genesis throughout the Bible to Revelation, each of those covenants functions in progressive fulfillment. They are fulfilling one another. They're fulfilling God's ultimate covenant goal, which is this. For God to be our God and for us to be his people. That's the heart of all of the covenants. For God to be our God 
and for, for um, us to be his people. So in Noah, in the Noahic covenant, after the flood, God makes a promise to Noah. And what does he say? He says he will never destroy humanity through a flood again. What is God doing? He's preserving his people. He's preserving his people. He doesn't want them to be destroyed again. He makes that promise. And then in Abraham, God promises that one family will become a great nation. And that that nation will bless all of the nations. Right? What God is doing in the Abrahamic covenant is identifying his people as a people of faith. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So first, God preserves his people. Then he identifies his people. They are going to be the the offspring of Abraham, a people of faith. And then here in Moses, after God liberates his people, he is now nationalizing Israel through the law. It's not just a family. It's not just a tribe. It becomes a nation. A nation of people that will go out as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, to bless all of the other nations. He's nationalizing Israel through the law. And what God is doing here is he's sanctifying his people. It's the process of making them holy and set apart. He didn't want Israel just to be like Egypt. He didn't want Israel just to be like Babylon and Assyria. He wanted his people to be different, distinct, his. O. Palmer Robertson in his book, Christ of the Covenants, he writes this. Historically, the nation of Israel was already in a covenantal relationship with the Lord through Abraham. The external legal stipulations of the Mosaic law represent one mode of administration of the covenantal bond. That is a uh, mouthful. That's pretty technical. So uh, let's have the media team leave it up there on the screen so you guys can kind of chew on it and, and, and process that. But Robertson's point is this. What makes the Mosaic covenant distinct What makes it necessary and how it's part of the covenantal progression of the Bible is this, okay? It's the external revealing of God's will. It's the external revealing of God's will. God wanted his people to know his will. He wanted his people to know how to love him and love one another. Even in our church today, if I do a seminar on knowing God's will, it fills out. We all want that. Lord, what is your will for me? We read books, right? We, we have blogs. We pray that all the time. We have conversations. We want to talk to our mentors, community group leaders, pastors. Like, how do I know God's will for me? Well, God wants you to know his will. And he tells it to his people through the word, through the law. God is teaching Israel how to live, how to know him, how to love one another. This is why he gave them the law. This is how God would govern over Israel. This is how God would administrate over Israel, okay, through the law. Let me give you an example of, of how this works even in our own lives and why this is so important. Right now, my, Seth is, my son Seth, Seth, my son Seth is an infant, 13 months old. Pastor DC, he has a son who's in elementary school. Some of the men here, uh, you have sons who are teenagers and even adults. Relationally, we're all the same. We're all fathers who love our sons, right? Relationally, positionally, we have the same experience. But the way we lead our sons, the way we instruct our sons, the way we discipline our sons and administer authority over them, totally different. Totally different. Right now, if my son Seth is misbehaving, time out or grounding him means nothing to him. 
He's like, time out. This whole place is mine. What are you talking about? Right? And he's a little young to spank. I tried it once. He laughed at me. Right? He was like misbehaving so bad. He like wouldn't sit still. I'm like trying to change his diaper. And he just wouldn't. So I just gave him a little spank on his side. He looked at me and laughed. I was like, man, this kid's like the Joker or something. What's going on? Right? I can't form his character with just a long man-to-man talk on the porch. Right? If your kids mature and have the cognitive ability to do that, you can have a man-to-man talk with your well, Seth, he, he just can't. Right? Money means nothing to him right now. So I can't just take away his allowance as leverage, right? I've got to relate to him in his infancy. So I have to distract him, redirect him, use strong tones to try and discipline and administer my authority over him. But as he gets older, as my son matures, discipline will look different. Character formation will look different. Instilling wisdom into him as a young man will be very different. This is what God is doing with Israel through the law. He's forming them, okay? He's forming them. He's revealing his will to them. He's teaching them how to live. How would Israel know how to be a holy nation without the law? Think about that. If they didn't receive the Ten Commandments, if they didn't receive the Book of the Covenant, what would they do? They would just try to live for God using their own thoughts and imagination and ideas. And in the end, they'd end up doing exactly what the Romans do, what the Babylonians do, what the Egyptians do. It would just be idol worship in the name of Yahweh, man-made religion. And God says, no, you will not worship me according to your ideas. You will not follow me according to your thoughts, your opinions, your preferences. You will know me as I reveal myself to you. You will worship me as I lead. Right? You will be holy as I am holy. And I'm going to teach you what holiness looks like through the law. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, he describes the law as a tutor. Right? A schoolmaster instructing God's people. He describes the law as a guardian protecting God's people from sin, from waywardness and rebellion. This is what the law does. It's an instructor, a tutor, a guardian for us. And so in the ten words, God commands his people, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols, no graven images. You're not to use my name in vain. You are to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And in the last six, they're the human relational commands. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. These are the commands that God gave his people. Oh, do not commit adultery. And in the book of the covenant, God gives more instructions. More specific instructions on ethics. Ethics and justice. And each of these laws, they reflect a holy lawgiver. Okay, I I want us to see this. I want us to have a high view of God's law. That each law reflects a holy God, a a lawgiver. And by participating and obeying the laws of God, you reflect a holy life. You reflect a holy life. So Moses reads the law, not once, but twice to Israel. And after each time, they respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the second time Moses reads the law, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they add this phrase, 
and we will be obedient. We will be obedient. The first reading is given so that Israel will understand. Okay? That the Israel would understand. The second reading is given so that Israel can promise to obey. Promise to obey. It's like in a wedding ceremony when the preacher asks a man and a woman to declare their intent. Okay? If you've ever sat through a wedding ceremony, the preacher will ask a bunch of questions. Do you, will you, in sickness and in health, right? Uh, and I don't know why I'm forgetting all the weddings. I should remember my wedding vows. Anyways, um, and I have a wedding next week. I, I better memorize these. Um, preacher asks all of these questions, and then the man will say, I do. And I'll look to the woman, right? And she'll say, I do. And you would think that's good enough, right? They already said, I do. What happens next? Then they exchange vows to one another, right? They exchange vows to one another to affirm, right? To restate their covenantal relationship. And then that's not all. It's not just oral pledges. It's not just oral and verbal commitments. One more thing happens after that. Don't, I'm not talking about the kiss, right? I'm talking about the exchanging of the rings. Husband and wife, they exchange rings as tokens of their love and affection. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of marriage. It's to always remind them of their bond. Always remind them of their union and their commitment. And the same thing happens here in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? God's word, his laws are read. Israel says yes. All that the Lord says we will do and we will obey. And that's not the end of it. God seals his covenant through sacrifice. God seals his covenant through sacrifice. This is the third point. Let's get back into the text. In verse 4, okay, in verse 4, we're told that early in the morning, Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he sets up 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And there they made two kinds of offerings to the Lord. The first was a burnt offering. The second was a peace offering. What are these and, and what are the distinctions? Burnt offerings were given wholly to the Lord, fully devoted to him, burnt to a crisp, right? And here the whole animal would be consumed by fire. Nothing would be left. It was given over to the Lord and what it symbolized was atonement for their sins, payment for their sins. And when this animal was fully consumed by fire on the altar of God, Israel would remember that God's wrath has been assuaged, right? God's wrath, his holy anger has been assuaged and they are forgiven, right? They are forgiven. Their sins are atoned for. The second offering was a peace offering. And this was also known as the fellowship offering. And unlike the burnt offering, the peace offering would be roasted on the altar in order to be eaten, okay? Right? It would be served for a meal. I can imagine uh, some of our church members, some of our deacons enjoying this part of worship. I'm ready to roast the bull, so that we can eat it. All right. And I don't, I don't know how oxen is best served, but I'm guessing a nice medium, medium rare. Uh, cooked temp is the goal. But before this peace offering is made, one more thing happens. The blood was drained from the animal and collected into large bowls. And Moses takes half the bowl and he throws it on the altar of God. He takes half of the blood, I mean, and throws it on the altar of God. And the other half of the blood, do you know what he does? He throws it on the people. He sprinkles the blood of this ox on the people of Israel. And I take a literal reading of this text. And we need to ask why. That sounds disgusting. 
Right? Who wants animal blood on them? It sounds barbaric. I mean, we're about to take communion at the end of this message and imagine instead of just offering you the juice, I pour it on you, right? I splash it in your face, right? If you see that happen to the person in front of you, you're just turning right around. You're like, not this, not this month. I'm, I'll, take, I'll pass on communion, But that's what Moses does. He takes the blood of this ox and he sprinkles it on the people of Israel. Why? Why? The reason why he did this is because God wants to remind Israel that this covenant is a matter of life and death. Yes, through this practice, they can remember that they belong to God. That they are his people. Yes, this covenant reminds them that they are holy and called to be set apart from the other nations. But there's more going on here through this blood ceremony. And it's that this covenant, the holiness of God, the law and command of God, obedience to God is no small thing. It's a matter of life and death. The people of God were bound to him in blood. We are bound by blood. If you remember the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, God commanded Abraham to cut animals in half and lay them in a row. Lay them in a row, kind of creating an aisle. And in the ancient Near East, this is how covenants were made. They would come to an agreement, they would give their stipulations, and they would swear an oath to each other. And to confirm the oath, both parties of the covenant, they would walk through. And what they're saying is, I promise to fulfill my end of the bargain. I promise that I'm going to uphold my commitment to you. And if I don't, may it be unto me what has happened to these animals. Strike me down. Split me in half if I lie. And go back on my word to you. That's what this covenant symbolized. Abraham falls asleep. And he wakes up. And to his absolute surprise, he sees God in the form of a burning torch pass through the rows of those dead animals, confirming the covenant by himself. What God was doing in the Abrahamic covenant is he was swearing that he would make good on his promises to Abraham, that he's going to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him and bless the nations through him, that that was going to depend wholly on Jehovah God, that it's not up to Abraham. It's not dependent on Abraham's performance, Abraham's obedience, Abraham's righteousness. God says, I will save and redeem my people, and it's all on me. I will make good on my promises to my people. I will make sure that all of my covenant promises are yes and amen. Here in Exodus, something similar is happening. A blood pledge is being made between God and his people. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. In this ceremony, in this ceremony, God is reminding Israel, the wages of sin is death. Okay? The wages of sin is death. The law has been given. Obedience is required and Israel has sworn their obedience to him. And so Moses sprinkles blood all over the people And in doing so, he's telling them, if you break God's law, if you break your covenant with the Lord that you have made today, you deserve death. What Moses is telling Israel and what Moses is telling us today, that sin is no small thing. You deserve divine judgment. 
when you commit idolatry. You deserve death when you steal, when you lie, when you, commit, when you envy and covet the possessions of another person. When you dishonor your parents, you deserve death. When you neglect the Sabbath, you deserve death. When you use the Lord's name in vain, you deserve death. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? I think too many of us in the church, we have this low view of sin. We think it's just making mistakes. It's casual, no big deal, nobody's perfect, right? Who would die because they curse their parents? God says you deserve death when you curse your parents. Who would die just because you stole a little whatever, trinket from an electronics store, which I did when I was growing up, right? God says you do deserve death. The wages of sin is death. God's holiness and his righteousness is the standard and we fall short. Now, you may be thinking, man, that seems like the opposite of what God was doing with Abraham. With Abraham, God's like, it's on me. I promise I will make good on this covenant. You just sleep and watch and trust. And then with Moses, it seems like it's all works oriented. It's all performance based. You might think, man, where's the mercy? Where is the grace? This is where we need to see the order of events. We need to see all that's happening here. What happened before the blood was sprinkled on the people? Before that, the blood was thrown on God's altar. The blood was thrown on God's altar. What happened before the blood was sprinkled on the people as a reminder of the wages of sin and the holiness of God? The burnt offering was made for their sin, for God's satisfaction uh, for God's wrath to be satisfied we have to remember everything that is preceding this blood pledge Phil Riken writes this the blood was a sign of God's mercy God was not simply showing his people what would happen if they failed he was also showing that there was a way to remain in his favor even after they sinned this is so important God knows Israel is going to sin I mean they've already been sinning in in the wilderness, complaining, grumbling, arguing, disbelieving. Moses is going to go up 40 days and 40 nights, and you know what's going to happen, right? The golden calf. By the way, Pastor Paul's preaching on that one, not me, right? They're going to sin. And what God needs to do, what he must do, is create a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. For his children, as much as they want, and as over and over again, they can say, all that you say we will do, we will obey. God knows that as soon as you leave this place, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. And what God is doing here in the Mosaic Covenant, he's showing them that there is a way to remain in his favor, even if you fall short. Brothers and sisters, in the Mosaic Covenant, we see both the seriousness of sin and our hope for redemption. God shows us that we are responsible for our sin, that we do deserve death. We do deserve judgment for our law breaking. This is a truth we must confess. Friends, this is a reality we must embrace. But God also reminds us that there is a way to forgiveness. There is a way to be redeemed and saved. And that is through sacrifice. Through the death of another, God will forgive the people of their sins. Whose blood is sprinkled on the people for the peace offering? Is it their own? 
Is God saying, hey, you better shed your blood for me and then I'll forgive you? The answer is no. It's the blood of another. It's the blood of the sacrificed animal. And through that sacrifice, Israel enjoyed peace with God. Israel isn't destroyed. They're not cast off. It's through the sacrifice of an animal and the shedding of blood, God continues to accept them, provide for them, and protect them. And it's not because the blood of bulls and goats has power to forgive sins. In fact, the author of Hebrews says it's impossible. Right? There's no animal that you can put in place right before you and say, God, don't punish me, punish my dog. Right? Don't judge me, judge this horse or this goat or this bird. That actually doesn't really make, you know, it's impossible. So how does this work? Why does God accept this ox? God accepts the sacrifice because it points forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. What the Mosaic Covenant does is it establishes the basis of blood. It binds us to God and it binds God to us in blood. And it is Jesus Christ in the new covenant who shed his blood for us on the cross. And he fulfills this righteous requirement. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how does he do this? Not just with his words. He doesn't just do it with his emotions, affections, kindness. He doesn't take away the sins of the world simply by his good works. He takes away the sins of the world by dying on the cross and shedding his blood for us. This is the gospel message. This is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 3. This is the story. This is the journey that each of us must go on if we want to know God. Follow him and experience him. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is each and every one of us. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means wrath-bearing substitute by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, this is the pathway of grace and for salvation that God has made for his people. Through the death of another through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are declared innocent, righteous. That's what it means to be justified. We are received as God's sons and daughters on the basis of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to pause right now. I talked a lot about sin. I talked a lot about God's holiness. And I want to honestly ask, do you care? Do you care? In the modern church today, there's so many of us who don't care. We live in rebellion. We have our own forms of acceptable sins, lifestyles, patterns, addictions, behaviors, decisions that we make. And so when the preacher comes up or when a song describes sin or when we're reading in the Bible, the reality and the punishment of sin, the holiness of God, the judgment that is coming, we don't care. Our hearts are callous. Our hearts are hardened and we don't change. We don't repent. We don't fight against the flesh. We don't fight against sin. We don't fight for holiness. We're just like, 
can't change. Jesus loves me as I am. No big deal. And that's called lawlessness, friends. And if that is you today, as we went through in our service regularly this time of confessing our sins and remembering his holiness, every Sunday when we do that, church, if you have nothing to say, if there is no stirring in your heart, if there is no brokenness and grief and contrition in that time of worship, the confession of sin, and you just don't care, I want to, I want to warn you and I want to ask you, Perhaps it's because you actually don't really believe in God. The underlying sin behind lawlessness isn't, oh, I love myself so much and my idol's comfort. The underlying sin is unbelief. The reason why you choose sin over God is because you don't actually believe in God. The reason why you choose your sin over obedience is because you don't believe he's holy. You don't believe that God is just and that Jesus Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. Right? There's something you're missing about the person of God. Something that you're missing about the reality of God's holiness, judgment. There's something you're missing about the truth of the gospel. So if you are in sin, continual unrepentant sin, the way back is, you better wake up and get your life right. No, the way back is believe in the gospel. Believe in who God is. Would you consider him? Would you remember him? Would you realize that the life that you are living and the God of the scriptures, that those things are not lining up? And perhaps you're not really a member of God's covenant people because God is a holy God and he wants you to reflect his holiness. God is a loving God, an authoritative God, and he wants you to live under his will to abide in his ways, to obey his commandments, and to believe and know that that is better. His ways are higher than ours. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. We hear God's word. We commit ourselves wholly to obedience. But when we fail, and we will surely fail, we don't try to justify ourselves. We know we can't atone for our sins. We know we can't fix our sins by our own power and our own resolve. We make our appeal by the blood of Jesus Christ. We believe he has paid it all. And we believe that through his death on the cross, we are fully forgiven and accepted. And then when we go through this cycle and journey of the gospel, we strive again for holiness. Okay? We say, I have forgotten I have been wayward. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for still accepting me. I want to obey and live for you. All that you say, oh Lord, I will do. And we do this because we are bound to God. We are purchased by God through the blood of the Lamb. Our passage ends with Moses and the leaders of Israel going up the mountain. And there's something amazing that happens. They see God. They behold him. It's not him in his fullness. There's a veiled form. There's this sheet of blue glass that protects them. And so they actually just see God's feet, which is pretty funny. They behold him. They are not destroyed. And then they eat and they drink. And this is the joy of the covenant. It's not just that you're not damned. 
The joy of the covenant is not, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be destroyed and cast off. The joy of the covenant is fellowship with God. You get to eat and drink with God. The the gift of holiness is this. You get to see God. Without holiness, no one will see God. But blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see the Lord. That is the gift of holiness. You have fellowship with him. You have peace with God. And now as the children of God, you and I, we are members of the new covenant. And we enjoy this same privilege through the sacrament of communion. When we practice communion, we get to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, and we get to dine with him. We have fellowship with Jesus. We eat at his table. Think about this. Every Sunday, we are invited into God's house, into his presence, and we're welcomed. Right? We are welcomed. We can commune with him. He wants to fellowship with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you stir our hearts to appreciate and to see how much, God, you love us, how you have provided for us through your word and ultimately through the giving of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you have mercy on us for our sins are many. We all fall short of your glory. We all play games with you in our hearts and minds. We try to justify our behavior and our decisions. And I just pray that right now, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, allow us to confront our sin, to confess our sin, to grieve over our sin, and to believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is able to free us and forgive us of our sins. Lord, we are all burdened by our failures. We are haunted by our trespasses. Lord, would you apply the power of the gospel into our hearts right now? Help us to believe that you are able to atone for all of our sins. We thank you in Jesus' name and pray.